Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 118 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Nick Enfield, professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney for Language Research and the Sydney Initiative for Truth. His book, Language vs. Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists, was published by MIT Press in 2022. The book is the winner of the Prose Award for Language and Linguistics. There is something truly noble about the pursuit of scientific knowledge, or if the word noble grates on your ears, then call it admirable what scientists attempt to achieve. The scientist tries to know. However, every attempt at knowledge is all but thwarted by the scientist's own equipment for learning and the scientist's own mode of inquiry. And I don't just mean the things like the lab equipment or the statistical analysis. Sure, that stuff can also be miscalibrated or misread or misapplied. In other words, mistakes can be made anywhere along the line from manufacture to employment. But that's things going wrong. The thwart that I'm talking about here happens when things go right. For instance, take a scientist's attempted description of some mechanism in the learning done by a machine. The researcher here needs to understand how the one set of input affects the learning outcome in this manner, but then why one particular manipulation of that same input set changes the learning outcome in that manner. Really, it's a researcher's approximation of the machine's processing method, because the machine is, for example, classifying road signs by one set of criteria, which criteria are in themselves objects worthy of study, but those criteria change after the manipulation of the input to different criteria for the classification. The researcher's question is how and why And though this researcher will have to hand all manner of mathematical notation and also various readouts on numerous implementations of the machine model, still, if the researcher wants to understand the matter, then he or she must have recourse to the prime mode of inquiry and the prime piece of equipment given every scientist, regardless of field of study and regardless of problem being studied. I am, of course, talking about the language of writing. Science depends on language no less than does the culture of politics or the culture of business or the culture of our private lives. It may seem at times that scientists have sort of removed themselves and their questions from the sphere of language which any layperson would typically call normal, and so it is quite understandable that the impression arises that scientists a have control over the language they use, and that scientists, b, need less language than we laypersons do even just to get through our breakfasts. But this impression is false. 
If anything, then scientists need language even more than do many who pursue non-science work, because the communication of findings is the very hinge around which the door of science swings. Besides, the problems which scientists want to solve, like why a machine model should call a stop sign a stop sign, these sorts of problems continue to remove the scientist at every next question and trouble in the search farther and farther from common sense thinking. It is for this reason that scientists develop the notation of their symbolic reasoning, and it is why they enhance the accuracy of their measuring instruments, because scientists need to think not so much harder than the rest of humanity, but certainly farther from the ways of thinking that we humans have inherited from our cultures and our pasts, and definitely farther from the evolutionary design of the cognitive resources available through the brain. And this brings me to another piece of evidence proving that scientists do in fact need language quite a lot. And that evidence is the great care and attention which the entire endeavor of science has from the very start given to the resources of the written language. In the Western scientific tradition, beginning in the late 16th century, early 17th century, another way of thinking about the world spread at a furious pace with and because of another way of writing about the world. For example, as Isaac Newton was writing his treatise on optics during the 1680s, he was not just discovering new properties of light, but he was redeploying as well resources of the written language in order to aid him in that effort of knowledge making. You might say Newton used prisms, and he used the words prism and prismatic effect in order to think things about light till then unthought. Take this clause in that treatise. I quote, Now those colors argue a diverging and separation of the heterogeneous rays from one another by means of their refraction. End quote. Or take Newton's use of such terms as emergence, whiteness, inequality, instead of such more usual terms as emerge, white, unequal. The writing I'm putting here on display is really indistinguishable from the writing as practiced by any researcher in, to continue the previous example, machine learning today. And it's my point here that that shared written language demonstrates a characteristically scientist attempt to put the language, in these examples, of English to work for the discovery of causes and phenomena and qualities in the world of brute reality. So by this understanding of the matter, Newton is not avoiding the nominal I, nor is he obfuscating the action of the sun's rays by such nominalizations as diverging separation or refraction. Newton's big noun emergence for the direct verb emerge, or for that matter why not just simply become, this is not a blaring instance of jargon or science speak. No, what we read here is just one more scientist, albeit a major one, and a trailblazer in this operation on the writing, but nonetheless, Newton is just one more scientist pushing the wording of his thought out to the limit of what is known about the properties of light. Scientists do this literally, haha, <laughs> every day, all day. I once heard a biologist I was working with, a man with a stellar publication record, and with the PI position in an innovating research group, this man said to me, we spend our days in the lab looking for the right words. Well, for Newton, in his day, and for his study, emergence and colors argue were the right words. Newton needed to halt the process of light and motion. But how? I mean, light is motion, isn't it? So, to halt it in order to describe it required that it moving be turned into the word emergence. And if Newton was to develop his reasoning about the mechanisms causing the diverging and separation of the ray of light, then he must, as he did, pack the stages of his thinking arrived at into units he could maneuver to places here and there in the flow of his discourse. Therefore, in the above passage, the closing words by means of their refraction, can then be tracked in the ensuing discourse as this inequality, or the refractivity. 
Newton wouldn't have gotten very far in this had he stuck with just concrete entity, visible action, circumstance of the two together. No, Newton needed, and he found and he used, an instrument apart from his lenses and lens rigging in order to be able to comprehend the stages of instant light. And today's machine learning researcher needs no less if she is going to comprehend the stages of decision boundary formation in a model. Therefore, both scientists are actually reliant upon their hacks to the written word. And there I discover a nobility of purpose. I don't care, I'm calling it that now. It is noble to me because the effort just appears to be so at odds with the instrument and the means through which the effort is being made. But the scientists continue making the effort anyway, and though the work gets no easier, and though the attempt remains fraught with the limitations of human reason and perception, still the scientists try, and they try the main way they have, and have to try, by writing words. My guest today on the show has written a book which lucidly explains why language is to the scientist what language is. Nick Enfield's Language versus Reality is excellent linguistic work on the problems of language. But in true scientific fashion, Nick also faces that problem to explore as well just how we humans can know what language is and so enable ourselves to use language at the height of its capacity and to the best of our abilities. Let's see then in today's discussion as well how the scientists among us might also use language to that effect and with that ability. So let's begin today's episode. Nick Enfield and Language versus Reality. Hi, Nick. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, in our interview today, I, I'd really like to, as the uh, introduction sort of indicated, explore this subtitle of yours. Um, you have a fantastic title, Language versus Reality, but your subtitle really caught my attention, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. And perhaps to just sort of kick us off there in that general direction, what would be some of the more general points that you would say that scientists who, as we know, need to publish to do their research could learn from your own findings uh, so that they can actually do the reading that they need to do and the writing that they need to do to, to the benefit of the research itself? Well, there's an interesting tension for any scientist, and that is that we have to be scientists and lawyers at the same time. Uh, I should clarify what, what the subtitle means. So in the book, I, I'm really talking about a general tension that language has, which is on the one hand, we want to use it to talk about reality, to capture experiences accurately. Uh, to convey ideas and, and clarify matters. That's the sort of what we, what we want to call the kind of scientific function of language. It's, it's representing uh, truth in a sense. And then there's the, the lawyer function of, uh, of language, which is to persuade people, to uh, manipulate people, to get people to do or to think the things that we want them to, to do or think. And so for a professional scientist, you know, we're really sort of stuck in the middle of this because to be successful as a scientist, you know, on the one hand, you mean succeeding in uh, disseminating uh, concepts and ideas. Um, on the other hand, you also mean succeeding in, in one's career and, and sort of, uh, you know, getting attention and being cited and uh, all, all the rest of it. So we, what I think is ideal is that we maintain a commitment to to truth and clarity of thought and accuracy in in our work but at the same time use the tools of language to kind of get above the noise of publishing these days and um use the the, the sort of tools of language the affordances of language to uh convince and help others to kind of pay attention to what we're doing. And, and, and that would be the kind of perfect balance. Yeah, I mean, you make uh, some very clear statements, uh, well, throughout the book, for sure, but in the conclusion, they're talking about how uh, just this point there that reality, I'm quoting, reality must be our ultimate mooring. 
And you make a very good case in the book for a distinction between brute reality, which to simplify would just be the rocks, the trees, and the stars out there in, in, in the universe. Um, whereas there's, on the other hand, this social reality, which is where language is in many ways at home. It's where language excels. And, and I think you do right now also present this tension very, very clearly, this idea that the scientist indeed is looking out at brute reality and yet doing their work inside of this social reality. I mean, I don't think very any scientist would not agree with your uh, point in the conclusion that it is the brute reality that is the mooring, that is exactly their object of study. And yet they know that they need to turn around and as some people even say it, sort of translate that into articles and writing and, and, and reading also of other people's work. Yes, absolutely. So uh, brute reality is, is fundamentally important to everyone, not just scientists. Uh, it's obviously important to many scientists because many scientists study uh, brute reality, which is really the world of physical causation. Um, many scientists, of course, study culture and social reality as well. Um, but I, one thing that I like to point out about brute reality is that brute reality is what makes us die. It is, you know, the thing that really matters to everyone in the end, that if you uh, stub your toe on a rock or if you run in, walk into a, a, a glass door, you know, that's brute reality, right? You, it hits you in the face. And um, that's what makes us sick. That's what uh, causes accidents. So, so everybody in the world is, is interested in brute reality because we don't want to be injured. We don't want to be ruined. Um, we want to know how to stay healthy and, and, and all of that. Um, but much of our life is really based in social reality as well. Now, that distinction is not my own. It's, it's, it's a well-articulated uh, well distinction in, in philosophy and sociology. And I quote the philosopher John Searle on this distinction, and he's, he's very clear on the difference between uh, brute reality and social reality. And social reality is important because social reality comes about through agreement, through human uh, collective decision to treat something as being true. Now, that's the kind of thing that can create systems of trust like property rights, uh, value of money, these kinds of things, um, social statuses, you know, membership in clubs, all of that sort of thing. Um, and in my view, it's also the basis of linguistic meaning. It's the basis of all conventions. And, and language is like a kind of currency in that sense. It's sort of like money in the sense that we can, you know, we agree on what these uh, different uh, words mean and we then let them circulate. So the, the, the sort of puzzle for scientists is that the only way that you can create a community uh, of knowledge is through the social reality that is, you know, what we use to coordinate, right? So language is really the ultimate social technology for, for coordination. And no matter who you are as a scientist, you need to use language to educate other scientists, teach your students, uh, you know, communicate at conferences. Um, but really, in terms of being at the coalface, it's about talking, you know, arguing about your ideas, testing your ideas with others, and, and you have no choice but to uh, enter into the world of social reality to, to make that happen. And, and more practically, of course, you are part of a world of, uh, you know, I mentioned money before. As a, as a researcher, you depend on funding and, and you depend on having a job and this kind of thing. And all of that is also part of the world of, of social reality. Um, so that's in a way when you, you you mentioned the last chapter of the book, I'm pointing to some of those tensions. But I think that what I really like to emphasize is that there's a danger with social reality, and that is that it can get us away from brute reality. It can make us pay attention to things that are only true because we agree on them being true. But those things can never undo brute reality you can never agree to uh, make gravity go away or you can never uh, just simply agree for people not to be sick and so though the, the, in the end we are accountable to brute reality and that's why i i keep emphasizing um 
that it is uh, it's it essentially outranks uh, social reality in some important sense. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And and yet we see the interesting interplay in science itself, the pursuit of science and and communities of scientists of this brute reality and, and, and social reality. I mean, the whole reason that these communities or disciplines exist is because of brute reality for very many of the reasons that you've just said, and also the fact that that is their object of study, right? I mean, if there weren't stars, there wouldn't be astronomers, um, for example. But this point that you make right here, that there is a danger or at least an effect or influence coming from language use from the conventions in t- inside of those communities of scientists that needs at the very least to be made you know public for people to i mean your book is doing this work it's helping us see what actually happens um, when language is being used and and that's one of those things that i really appreciate so greatly about um, the book for instance in chapter 10 um, as you were talking, I had to keep thinking of social glue, as you call the chapter, um, where this idea of a community forming and the agreement between the members of it, and even how big it is, you 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 break down for us sort of a social group of somewhere in the vicinity of 150 people being, let's say, a sort of limit on what could be called a a group that know each other and would use that common language with the same understandings and the same ability to coordinate. And this lines up really interestingly with the way that publishing and success in science occurs. It's usually 10% of the scientists who are really making the impacts in their fields. They're the highest cited. They're the most productive. And that leaves a huge group of people Outside of that range, it's one of those discrepancies in the way that science works that I've explored with other guests here on the podcast where you almost have the sense that there's, yeah, I mean, a club always sounds terrible because it makes it makes you think of, you know, late 19th century England. <laughs> That's not exactly the picture I have in mind, but there is a group who know each other and who are speaking about the research that they happen to have, even in their articles in ways that people outside of that group, they can't coordinate quite in the same way around those objects, can they? No, that's right. It's, uh, it's important, I think, to recognize that the, uh, the kinds of social arrangements that you're describing are really based on networks and, um, you know, networks have all of these interesting properties that I think account for the inequalities, essentially, that you're describing. So, you know, network systems tend to, to find, you know, tend to, uh, in, in network systems, these hubs tend to emerge, these kind of uh, nodes that, that are preferentially attached. So, so that's where you get kind of uh, in publication citation figures, for example, you get a small number of papers being cited many, many times, and then you get a very long tail. So, sort of a you know a power law type uh, relationship, and and in social circles, that's also what you get. And one of the reasons I think is because exactly because you pointed to this sort of Dunbar number of a of a of a kind of a limit of around 150 people who are kind of connected uh in a in a social situation where they can all know each other and 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 kind of circulate their ideas once you get higher than that number then uh it's hard to keep track of everybody so it's no wonder then that you know large communities of scientists break up into smaller communities and sometimes you get that breaking up of communities converging with that sort of um well, uh, you know, the long tail at one end breaking up in various smaller kinds of groups so that some people will be famous in their own very small uh, circle, you know, and then uh, the circles get bigger and bigger. And there's only a certain number of people who can be, uh, you know, famous or successful or, you know, heavily influential um, in the the larger community of scientists. And, and, you know, it's many hundreds of thousands of people that we're talking about. So uh, it's really quite hard to, to have an impact at that higher level. I've mentioned now uh, coordination. I think you've you've used the term as well. It's really one of those key ideas in the book. Um, it's in fact the the idea that you sort of kick off um, the intro and then the first chapter with, 
And I think it's probably worth that uh, you just give uh, listeners a sense of what it is, because you, in my own understanding, really make the case that you know communication through language use is much less about the transferal of information, which would be, I think, what most people's view of communication is, right? This piece of information gets over there. And it's so much more about this idea of so- social coordination. Could could you perhaps give a bit of a background to that idea? Sure. So, you know, I've been very much inspired by um, my previous uh, mentor and professor, Steve Levinson, um, who became a collaborator. So he uh, works in the field of well, many fields actually, but I got to know his work through the field of what's called linguistic pragmatics, and that's really looking at how people uh, socially interact through language, how they use language to uh, to converse, to interact, to engage in joint action. Uh, and in sort of getting into that literature, the pragmatic literature, uh, I discovered the work of Thomas Schelling, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist and sociologist. And he l- looked at coordination problems in human life. And so there are many basic coordination problems for human beings. So, for example, uh, well, he had many examples, but if we are on the telephone and the line gets uh, broken, uh, we want to call each other back and resume the call, but which person is going to, to do this? is uh, how, That's a coordination problem. Would I wait for you to call me or would you wait for me to call you? Uh, we both want the problem to be solved. It's it's in our mutual interest. Uh, and we just need to figure out, you know, how without without discussing it because of the lines being cut, uh, we, I need to think, well, okay, will you call me or should I call you? And people will generally converge on a solution that they think the other would also choose. And that's in the phone call case, that's usually going to be the person who made the call. Uh, If the call gets cut off, that person will be the one to call back. Um, So we look for these kind of ways to uh, coordinate with each other without communicating. And sometimes, you know, language, of course, allows us to coordinate through pure communication. We can make an agreement. For example, you know, we're going to meet tomorrow for uh, lunch. Where should we meet? Um, so we could discuss it, but oftentimes people will seek coordination uh, solutions by defaulting to agreements that we've made before or by consulting our, com- like our common ground with people. So when we know people well, we can usually coordinate quite uh, well with them without even having to make agreements. Often that's because we've we've done things in a certain way before. So we would meet at the same restaurant at the same time, and that way we don't have to kind of negotiate um, an agreement every time. So coordination problems are very important. They, they they help us solve things like you know which side of the road should we drive on, and uh, you know consequential things like that. Now. Language itself, so, you know, in the book I, I talk about this coordination problem issue and the, the real kind of point I want to emphasize there is that language itself is really a technology for social coordination. It's what we use to align with other people and it's a, it's a, it's a what's really sort of magical about it is that it is something we use to coordinate with people we've never met before so if we if we assume that others know the language that we know in this case we're speaking english uh, i can make a long long list of assumptions about things that you uh, already have signed up for in a sense you've signed up for all of these english words having all of these meanings and that presents us with a great sort of list of solutions to coordination problems so if i need you to pass me the salt Luckily, I have a word salt, and because you're you're an English speaker, I can assume you know that word. And so that's a very simple case of a coordination problem uh, being sort of generically solved by the fact that we speak a language in common. So it's easy to think of a language as being, uh, you know, an information transmitting machine. Uh, but I, I don't think, and, and of course, it does transmit information, but my point in the book is that that is not its primary function. 
the primary function of language, the reason why we learn it, the reason why we use it, uh, is is to coordinate with other people, and that's really you know if you look at language in 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 it in the wild, that's what we're doing with it. We are uh, either influencing other people in tasks or we're cooperating with other people in tasks or we're building common sense making through narratives through gossip uh in all of these sort of functions we are essentially coordinating with other people either in a very immediate kind of cooperative uh, joint action or in a much more general sense about sort of building investing in our social relations uh, talking to people in ways that kind of, uh, you know, build or develop our relationships and so forth. So, so that's coordination. Um, and to, to, to my mind, it's really one of the most powerful features of language, but it's strangely underappreciated. And, and, you know, linguistics in general has focused much more on the information transmitting function of language. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off indeed i mean that's and and that's what caught my attention so much in in your book and and also professionally my listeners my listeners will know that i i help scientists write um and that is also just sort of from my professional life there's just far just way more evidence there for exactly what you're talking about this this widespread belief among scientists most of all i would say that that they see their tasks as, as packaging information in, into words. Um, this idea of writing it up and figuring out exactly how to say it, exactly and precisely how to say it. And notice, perhaps not noticing all the while, all the math that they're trying to do, all the figures that they're trying to display, all the tables that they're putting up to supplement the language, which is just not doing the job. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I find that's why your cor- corrective view on language, I'm just going to put it that way for now, that, you know, if you look at the information side, you're looking merely at one side of it and perhaps not even the primary side of it. And I think that this is my experience has shown me something that very many early career researchers just miss that their texts are they believe that their texts are you know, solely about the subject matter. They've got to get the subject matter right. And yet the successful texts have an entirely different, well, there's, I mean, everything in your book they have. They have sometimes narratives. They have um, certainly coordination around key terms and ideas expressed in ways that make sense to the right groups of people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you touched on some really important points. In general, I think that when we use language, it's very natural to feel that, uh, to to not even see language, you know, the kind of um, idea that language is like like water for fish, you know, the the fish are swimming in the water and they, they don't, Therefore, they don't know what water is. It's it's invisible to them in some sense, and 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 language is like that too. So it means that we use language to describe our findings. We use it to you know write a report or something, and it's very natural just to to not even notice that you're choosing words to describe things. You just tell things the the, the way they are. But in in reality, you know, language is this very fragmentary system so you know in the book i talk about some of the ways in which we have 
incredibly detailed, very fine perception for things like colors, um, you know, smells and so on. We have very, very fine uh, capacity to perceive distinctions in the world, but our languages are very, very uh, coarse and give you only a small number of categories for describing those things. Even so, we feel like when we talk about our experience, we're somehow, uh, you know, adequately capturing it. And so the truth is that we we really aren't adequately capturing it. What we're doing is relying on the imagination of the person we're talking with to to meet us in in the same place that that we want to go in some sense, Uh, you know, to coordinate around uh, an idea that is sufficiently close to what I I want to talk about. So an interesting way of describing that is, the way that Daniel Dore, the communication scholar, calls it, he he refers to language as a way of instructing the imagination, that you're not really passing a bit of uh, information across. What you're doing is is instructing or inviting the other person to imagine the thing that you are imagining. Uh, So it it, it puts a lot more agency in the mind of the other person, uh, and it makes you realize how you have actually less agency over uh you know getting getting the other person to to know exactly what you think so that's a really important point that people should reflect you know writers and speakers need to reflect on how language really doesn't do enough work for us that we did or at least it doesn't do the amount of work that we think it does and we we tend to be overly confident so I was reading recently with uh, students of mine here at, at the University of Sydney um, the famous paper by George Orwell on politics in the English language. Uh, and most people think of that paper as being a sort of, you know, just an instruction uh, set of principles for how to write clearly. But he has some really powerful insights about about the choice of language when you're writing. And his basic point is that we we... We're lazy when we write. We're lazy when we choose language because we see the word, familiar words lying around and we just grab them. And he says that when you do that, you're letting the language think for you. Uh, you are allowing these very coarse, very fragmentary ideas that happen to be uh, coded in your particular language. You're, you're just letting them sort of channel your thinking along uh, along this very sort of partial uh, lines. And so he, he actually recommends in that paper that we should get our thoughts straight as far as possible without using language at all. Figure out clearly what we think and only after we know what we think, then uh, finding the right words. And, and essentially it's a recipe for much more mindfulness in, in thinking about how we speak. And so therefore, greater agency, really greater control over the clarity of what we say. Yeah, I, I, I'm quite familiar with the essay and George Orwell, George Orwell is a fantastic writer. And, and I like this idea of it being mindful thinking that he's talking about, because there is certainly an element of that. But I, I find the way that you are able to extend his approach is by showing also a lot of the psychological research and other research that that shows that there's a limit to how mindful the individual can be, right? I mean, our concepts and our words are so intertwined to each other that, you know, part of what we really need to do to get back to this idea that you say of instructing the other person's imagination, for instance, from door, um, that we need to recognize that our agency is, is limited or, or bigger than we think it's, you, you talk about distributed, um, agency as being really what's going on when we communicate with others. And, and again, this, this brings me back to this idea that when somebody's beginning to write about science and even people up through their mid careers and some people throughout their entire careers, they, they're not noticing that their focus is on the subject rather than on the reader. I mean, I think a late career scientist will start to just intuitively get that more, but I don't think very many early career ones will. And that that is precisely, I think, what they're, they're missing, this this point that you say that they, their focus on the, the subject matter, of course, then is to the detriment of a focus on how they might um, help another person interpret 
in the way that they're interpreting. So they'll be laying down plain facts in a results section, relying, unfortunately, on the idea that the results speak for themselves, as the saying goes. But I mean, your, your view of language and your proof in the book shows that, well, if it's in language, those results are not going to speak for themselves, are they? <laughs> no, no, exactly. So I think this is, this is really important that we need to, I mean, there's a, one of the most powerful principles of science is self-criticism. Uh, you know, it's the classic kind of popper idea that you, you know, you, you, you want to be as creative as possible, but then you want to apply a very austere kind of self-criticism and try to prove yourself wrong. And so to my mind, that really suggests a kind of a, not just self-critique, but, you know, true kind of critical thinking around whether the categories that you have are the only possible ones and, and, and whether your intuitions about how to talk about something are actually the right ones. So it's quite hard to imagine the things that you don't know, as we all know. And so what are the what are the strategies you might use to kind of break out of your the ruts of your of your language? Well, uh, one of the people that I talk about quite a bit in the book is is Benjamin Lee Worf, uh, the linguistic anthropologist from the, in the who worked in the U.S. In, in the 20th century, and he's famous for developing along with others uh, this idea of linguistic relativity, the idea that the language you speak can affect your reasoning and behavior in, in, in certain ways. And he makes this really important point that, you know, we are directed in this way and that by our language along the lines we've been discussing. And he says that, you know, there's an antidote to that. And the antidote is learn more languages learn other ways of talking about reality. And that might literally mean, you know, he, he meant, you know, learn North American native languages, learn European languages, learn different ways of framing the, the, the world. And he said that, you know, this is one way to essentially see colors that you haven't seen before. You know, you can think thoughts you haven't thought before. And I think that's true of of languages, but it's also true in science of different, you know, we have this other sense of the word language, you know, chemists talk differently from astronomers and they talk differently from philosophers and they talk differently from psychologists. Um, and so that's one of the really important benefits of interdisciplinary work, interdisciplinary reading, uh, interdisciplinary writing, because what you have to do is sort of have to translate. But the the important benefit of that is that you're seeing reality in different ways. You're seeing different framings of how things are, and that 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 shakes up your thinking. That that allows you to see your own native intuitions as not being just a default kind of perfect representation of reality but really one framing among many other possible framings and that that's really crucial to mindful uh writing yeah i i, I love the i mean i view also different disciplines and science as being different cultures um from a sort of systemic functional view of of what culture means um it doesn't need to necessarily be then, you know, a nation. I mean, a nation and the matchup between a nation and a culture and a language, as we know, is, is very shoddy indeed. Uh, but what you say there about, you know, scientific cultures entirely. And and I think that's what one of, I mean, so many of the ideas that your, your book was inspiring in me was just this idea of if you can find the majority ways that your culture, so let's say the the, the sub-community of chemists that you happen to work in, frame things. That research community has, you know, their own narratives, their own framings, their own vocabulary, and their own grammar. Then I think it has a two, a, a sort of a double payoff for you. I mean, one, on your own research thinking level, you've enabled yourself to think more, right? Because you can think in, you know, to, to use the metaphor outside of the box, so this would be the chemist who, you know, reads into also biochemistry and so on. But it also allows you to socially coordinate when you bring those ideas back into your community because you know the points at which 
you can share attention, have common ground with the people actually in your community to bring in these new ideas. So this would be, you know, the the section of a paper that is like abstract or introduction where the context is set. And it's there that that message needs to come across of what is it actually that you're thinking and what value does it have for us? Right. Yeah, I think there's a, a really important point there about having sort of a foot in two worlds in some sense. Um, and that's where I think innovation really comes from and where it has a, a real effect. So it's one thing to innovate, but you also need to have uh, uptake. You know, the innovation has to has to has to take off and, and, and be diffused in the relevant community. So, you know, there's a there's a an observation that, uh, you know, a revolutionary still has to sing uh, their songs you, you know using traditional folk uh, style because that's you know the the content might be new in some sense or preaching revolution but you have to use a conservative kind of uh, uh, medium in some sense to 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 spread that message so I think you know that's a really important insight that that to get across to an audience you have to have part of the framing has got to be comprehensible. It's just purely a matter of audience design. Uh, but you need to know how much you can innovate or do something a bit different, uh, particularly if you want to attract attention or somehow do something that's a little bit different from the norm. So as you were talking, I was thinking of the uh, observation that many breakthroughs in science uh, so I'm thinking of, you know, Thomas Kuhn's model of kind of scientific revolutions. The Often the breakthroughs in science come from outside the discipline. Often they really, you know, the discipline gets stuck into these kind of, uh, I don't know, dead ends or maybe not dead ends, but just run out of ideas, partly because, uh, you know the ways of talking are just are just very they become very conservative and it really requires somebody from outside to attack the ideas in a way that they're not um, you know picking up these lazy ways of describing but they're actually having to innovate and, and, and come up with their own way of describing things and then that attracts people's attention uh, if it's if it has some value um, but very often it's that it's that combination of outsider and insider that creates uh, that creates the spark. This lazy way of writing or even reading, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have made the case on this uh, program many times that the reading is underestimated in science. I, I believe that we need a scientific reading just as much as we need a scientific writing. But in any case, this lazy, lazy way, um, this Orwellian <laughs> view, um, which has found followers also all the way up to today. I mean, Verlin uh, Klinkenborg, for instance, if you happen to be perhaps familiar with him, has written about um, the use of language in writing and in, in, in similar tones and with similar vocabulary and also very convincingly. But this is exactly what excites me about your book, because that is true, right? We need to engage with our words and understand, for instance, what level of a category are we taking? Are we saying spoon? Are we saying utensil? Are we saying the spoon we bought two years ago at, at Ikea, <laughs> right? I mean, so that also translates into science, right? Are you using an abstraction? Are you naming the actual instrument or, or what have you? I mean, so there's that, but there is just this complicating factor now of no matter how well I do it, I can't actually bring the reality, the, that brute reality to bring us back around to the beginning into the language because the language is there evolved yeah, over many tens of thousands of years to do something actually different. So I'm going to have to recognize in my way of using the language also that I'm meant to coordinate with somebody, that I'm meant to instruct them in thinking and help them interpret and, and so on and so forth, to use some of the various um, devices that you talk about, uh, framing, narrating, priming, and all these other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the important things to think about there is that related to what we've been discussing, you know, if you have, in a sense, lazy ways of speaking, 
um, or of interpreting when you're reading and so on. Uh, oftentimes what that means is that you're not considering alternatives and to not consider alternatives is to, you know, that, that that's where the real problem comes that you thinking of something in your mind and you want to coordinate around it with someone else. Um, and if you just grab the most immediate uh, way of talking about it, what that means is that, you know, there's a possible opportunity cost. If you describe it in this way, the usual way, then, you know, you're not choosing all the other possible ways you could describe it. And, and this is one of the magical things about language is that, as you pointed out, you can, you can take any object or any, you know, action or event and you can describe it in the almost infinite number of ways. You know, it's a pet, it's a dog, it's a mammal, um, etc. Uh, and so we are, we are not really, you know, we don't really have time to negotiate or overthink every single uh, grammatical or lexical choice. You know, we can't always think about our wording every, every time we, we, we write a single word. Uh, so that's, that's a way in which, you know, we really can't escape our language a lot of the time but when you're writing something that really is important you know i think it's that's where mindfulness really matters is that you are considering the alternative ways of saying it and really kind of i think the most healthy thing is pushing yourself away from just gravitating to the to the default kind of ways of speaking uh, you have to be strategic but uh, i think it's always worth remembering that when you pick a word or a phrase or you, you know, write something in a certain way, it's always a choice not to have written it in all these other ways. And, and that's okay, but it's a, it, it, it's a choice that you're making. Uh, and oftentimes we, we overlook that fact that we're actually making active choices every time we, we describe something. Yeah, indeed. And, and, and those choices are being made in dialogue with your community, even if it's an imagined dialogue, but it's going to become real when your text is then actually read because that unspoken text beside, beside, between or behind the words that you haven't chosen are going to be activated for enough readers that, you know, it's there anyway. And this is a this is a point this is a point that you wonderfully make in various contexts throughout the book and 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 I, I want to also tell readers that this is a fantastic book to read. Um, you were mindfully writing this, Nick, <laughs> so you, you you do give us very many uh, quotable lines that just cl clarify your point. One on topic right now is I quote: "One might say that a language predisposes us to think think certain things." But perhaps its main effect is in causing us not to think certain things. And, and, and this repeats in various contexts with various experimental evidence and from various angles throughout the book. And, and it is an essential insight, I find. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's, as you know, writing clearly is, is, is not at all easy. Um, so it's, it's gratifying if, if, if the clarity is there. I, I think, you know, it, linking that point to something you said just a, m a moment ago, I think it's really important that the choices that we have in language. So, you know, there is a level in which I have choice when I'm speaking English. I can pick, you know, all these words and all these idioms. Uh, but as you suggested before, a lot of the choices, I mean, the, 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 the selection of choices I have is actually not up to me. I can't invent new expressions. I have to work with what I have been given by, you know, the history of the language, by our ancestors and the people who spoke English, you know, 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 100 years ago. So many of the choices have already been made by a, commu a historical community that has coordinated around things in the past. And, you know, culture changes. So we're stuck in this very interesting and slightly strange kind of lag between the, the historical communities that, that forged our languages and us today who are trying to innovate and work with the languages in a, in a, in a kind of new world. So I think that's really important that we need to think about the, that idea you just, you just cited from the quote that the things where our language is causing us not to think 
um, you know, we're being pushed in the direction of people who lived long ago in the past. Um, and sometimes that doesn't matter, but sometimes, you know, it, it, uh, it channels our thinking in certain ways, ways that we're, we're really very seldom aware of. Yeah, and this is, this is really pertinent to uh, the publication of science, what you're saying there, because you talk about historical communities, the communities that, that formed English. English now has a new register that has gone entirely international, the language of science. And the quirky sort of contradictory thing about that is in scientific publishing, language use is quite conservative, actually, in its norms. And yet innovation is very often or new thinking is very often um, at the heart of a particular field. So there again, I notice a tension that has in the past played out over generations in the culture of a language now being played out over periods of two to three years, right? Because science is, is, is working inside of its publishing industry and in its, in its formats for writing that, that may not always suit it. That's right. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the conservative nature of language. So one of the things we've been talking about is things like what words mean, uh, what idioms mean, but another whole area of, of structure in language is in the various genres that we use. So, you know, scientific writing is not just this one thing. Um, as you well know, it's, it's quite diverse. And, and when it comes to, for example, when we're writing for journals, some journals are very open to you. You can write you know, whatever kinds of section organization you want, you can use different sort of tone in the language. Um, other journals are very strict. Uh, we want this section and then we want that section and then we want the other section. And, and, you know, they will have very harsh word limits, which will force you to uh, write in a certain way. So different areas of science are going to constrain you in certain ways. And, and those sets of constraints themselves are really you know, again, uh, ways of forcing you not to say certain kinds of things or say things in certain kinds of ways. And, and, and that, that's, that sort of conservatism is, is useful in a way. I, I understand that, that particularly that scientists are trying to, you know, often scientific publications are really trying to kind of maintain the idea that science is about reporting facts it's not about you know literary uh expression it's about just you know we hear the facts we want to see what they are we don't want you know a novel or anything like that um but i do think that that is uh you know it does it's just not always going to succeed and um oftentimes we need to break out of those kinds of constraints to to make progress and to bring us full circle, to close out our interview, I would like to return to the conclusion and uh, just sort of riff bri briefly on what you just said there about this idea that science is meant to or wants to have the appearance of just reporting the facts when your book and some of what we said shows that there's a lot more going on than just mere reporting. But the industry itself certainly wants to curtail certain types of expression and keep, you know, a, a common format and a common way of speaking up front. And I think some of the idea behind that is that there's an exchange. There's, as you say in the conclusion, a marketplace for ideas view of communication. But you conclude so eloquently on the idea well, maybe it is more a marketplace for justifications, isn't it? Because what is actually happening when you enter into contact with new ideas is you're immediately bringing them up against your own. So what's really happening is arguing, um, replacing, reframing, uh, acting a bit more like a lawyer to use the sort of role that you give us in, in the um, subtitle there and less like a scientist. Well, I think that's, you know, to my mind, I think we need to defend uh, the the scientist beneath all of that, um, by which I mean not the professional scientist, but anybody who would defend uh, knowledge of, of reality. And so, you know, we do need to 
be mindful of the power of language to influence. And, and we always are influencing people when we use language. That's foundationally what all communication is. It's influencing other uh, agents. But because brute reality is so important to us, because it's, you know, it's ultimately life and death, uh, we really have a responsibility to to convey the truth and not to convey falsehoods, to to be clear and not to be vague. Uh, so you know, it's it's really about understanding the power of those two things: the power of being a scientist and conveying truth, and at the same time, the power of being a lawyer and and influencing others, irrespective of the truth. And to my mind, what's so important is that. Uh, you know, is that we'd be good lawyers, but better scientists. Well, thank you very much for that, Nick. That is Nick Enfield, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sydney for Language Research and the Sydney Initiative for Truth. His book, Language versus Reality, is out with MIT Press. I'm Daniel Shea. This is goodbye from me to Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you very much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.